Good evening, everyone. I'm excited to be here tonight for numerous reasons. One, I'm excited for the lesson that we're going to be studying tonight. I'm excited to be here before I go back to school to be able to speak to you guys. Buford is where I started speaking when I was growing up with lots of leaders. I'm excited to be here again, but probably most importantly, especially for everyone, I'm just excited to give everyone a break from Ben Hogan. We've been hearing him a lot lately. <laughs> but... um. <laughs> Um, I'm excited to be here tonight. Tonight we're going to be studying something that I think is very important and I'm excited to look at. But to begin with, I want to look at, I want to think about this quote that I've come across. I've heard it multiple times. I don't necessarily know who it was that said it originally. I've heard it from multiple sources. But it goes something like this. Hard times create strong men and strong men create easy times. Easy times create easy men and easy men make hard times, and then the cycle repeats. And it's something that's interesting to think about as it relates to like our culture and society. I mean, I think about what this, this country went through with World War I and World War II, how that was a very difficult time. And then after that, the people who fought in World War II and World War I, those were very strong men, and they created an easy society for us. And this cycle is, is not something that's always present in society, but it is something that's very interesting. There is a cycle that we're gonna be looking at tonight in the book of Judges that's pretty interesting that's found throughout the entire book of Judges. And it begins with Israel leaving God and then coming back. Numerous times it happens throughout the entire book of Judges. I'm sure if you've read it, you know how it goes. It usually starts off with, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This happens numerous times when Israel decides they want to leave God. They don't want to follow him anymore. And after this, this is where God punishes Israel. This is where he comes and he leads them and just gives them over into the hands of their oppressors whether it be the Midianites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Ammonites, God gives the Israelites over into the hands of their oppressors because of the evil that they did. And then the cycle continues with the next step, and usually it goes, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, this happens numerous times throughout the book of Judges also, that the Israelite realizes, okay, we've done wrong, we need to cry out to God because he's the one who's going to save us from our oppressors. And then after that, it usually goes, the Lord raised up a deliverer. And this happens numerous times also. And this is where we get the song, you know, for the, for the book of Judges. God sent judges over Israel, one great woman, 14 men. They helped Israel fight their battles, led them back to God from sin. And then we have Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, Samson, Eli, and Samuel. Mom made me memorize that song as a child. But that's what, that's what, that's what the next step of the cycle is. God sends a judge. So Israel cries to the Lord because God punishes them for doing evil, but then also God sends a deliverer. And at the very end of that song, before we get to the names of all the judges, it says, led them back to God from sin. And that's what the judge does. He leads the Israelites back to God and turns them away from their sins. And then typically the cycle finishes by the judge dies and Israel goes back right to what they were doing at the beginning. They start doing evil and the cycle repeats. And then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's a continuous cycle throughout the entire book of Judges that is just Israel staying with God and then leaving God and then coming back and then going back and just, it's this vicious cycle. And today we're going to be studying one of my favorite judges in the book and to see what we can learn from him and his story, but also see why might this cycle be? Why does this continue to happen in the book of Judges? Why is there this vicious cycle of the Israelites just leaving God and coming back, leaving God and coming back? And it's going to be Gideon. Gideon is probably one of my favorite judges we're going to be studying tonight. I think just because if you know anything about Gideon, he's a very interesting story. He is a story that most people probably remember. But also at the very end of his story, it has something pretty crucial and important. I think it's 
worth us looking at that can kind of give us an insight on why might this cycle continually happen? Why, why is this cycle always happening in the book of Judges? And we're going to be looking at how, do, how can we avoid the same mistakes that the Israelites kept, take, kept making. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Judges. We're going to be doing a lot of reading tonight. So if you don't have your Bible, there's one probably in the pew in front of you. Judges chapter 6. Open up there. That's where we'll begin tonight. Judges chapter 6. First, we're going to be looking at everything that Gideon did that was good for the nation of Israel. We're going to go through his story and see what all he did. It's not that long, so we can probably take a look at all of it. But we're going to look at first what he did that was good for the nation of Israel. And his story begins in verse 1 of chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There it is again. And the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midian, hands of Midian, seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. So this is where the story starts. At this point, there had been four judges prior to Gideon, but yet the cycle is continuing, just like we talked about at the beginning. The cycle is still continuing, and this is where the Israelites are given over into another oppressor, the Midianites here in this case, because they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Flip over to verse 11 through 14. We're going to be looking at the, chosen, the, cho- the, the choosing of Gideon. Gideon is chosen. So if we look at verse 12 of chapter 6, it says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Skip down to verse 14. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? So in verse 12, this is where Gideon is visited. And in verse 14, this is where God chooses Gideon as his next judge over Israel. He is commanded and he is given a charge that he is going to deliver the nation of Israel from the hands of the Midianites. In verses 13 and 15 of chapter 6, we see his response. Starting in verse 13. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? And now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Verse 15 now. He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least of Manasseh, and I am the youngest of my father's house. So Gideon's response to this is not only in verse 13 is he doubtful of God because he says, Where are you? I hear all these good stories about how you delivered the the nation of Israel from Egypt. Where are you now? He also doubts himself in verse 15. So he's doubtful of God, and he's doubtful of himself when God commissions him. But in verse 16, we see God's assurance that God gives, the Lord gives to Gideon. Verse 16, But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Surely I will be with you. This language to me when I was first studying for this lesson sounded very familiar to me, and I started to think, and I said, this is exactly what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. When Moses is giving all of these excuses as the reason why he doesn't think he's going to be the one that's good enough to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian captivity, God says in verse 12, Certainly I will be with you. It's the same exact language. And I think it's interesting that Gideon actually mentions the nation of Israel being brought up from Egypt. And, he, and then God uses the same language that he told Moses, who he chose to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. He says the same thing to Gideon to, to assure him that, God will be with you. I will be with you. This is, you're going to be able to be good enough for this because I will be with you. In verse 17 and verse 18, Gideon asks for a sign because he wants to be assured again that God is the one who's asking him to do this task. And then verses 19 through 24, an angel of the Lord comes and gives a sign and performs this sign and consumes this offering that Gideon 
um, offers up with a fire. In verse 22, chapter 6, it says, When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So Gideon is now convinced. He's convinced that it is actually God who's talking to him and is commissioning him to do this task to lead the nation of Israel once again as the next judge of Israel. And then in verses 25 to 32, the story continues. We get to Gideon's first task. We'll read verses 25 and 26, chapter 6. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. So Gideon's first task when he's commissioned by God is to rid his household of idolatry. He is told by God to get rid of all the Baals and to destroy the Asherah and to make an altar of acceptable worship to God, to get rid of idolatry and to put God back at the forefront of his own household. He is commissioned to purge his own home of idolatry and immorality. And then this is where we get to the next part of Gideon's story, which is probably the one that most everyone knows about, which is the big story of chapter 7, the few that are commissioned with Gideon, the, the infamous 300 story. It begins in verses 2 through 8 when God has is, God is commissioned Gideon, like we've already talked about, and he's given these people, but God, God wants to make um, some cuts to the people because he thinks they might be too much. So we'll read verses 2 through 8 to see what happens of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon in verse 4, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that, of he, that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And whoever of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the three hundred men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the three hundred men took the people's provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So this is what, is, this is what happens next in the life of Gideon. He has these 32,000 men with him. And they are weaned down and they are just they're taken down. He's downsized to these only 300 men. His, ta his next task that he has is going to be a lot bigger than the last one. A lot bigger than just destroying the idols of his household. He has to defeat the nation of Midian with only 300 men. And in verse 12 of chapter 7, it says, Now the Midianites and the Amicalites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. It describes them as numerous as locusts. And Gideon only has 300 men. But yet, he knows that he has God on his side. In verses 9 through 15, Gideon gets a confidence boost. God says, Go down to the nation of Midian, and you will be assured of your victory. 
And in verse 16, in verse 14 actually, Gideon goes down and he sees this person who has this dream. And the interpretation of the dream is what verse 14 says. He replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. So Gideon goes down and he, he hears this interpretation of the dream saying, you're going to win. God is on your side and you are going to destroy the, the Midianites with these 300 men. So Gideon gets those confidence boots. He knows, I can do this. I may only have 300 men and the Midianites may be as numerous as locusts, but I can do this. And verse 16 says that he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into their hands of all of them with torches in the side, inside of the pitchers. So he doesn't arm them with, with shields and swords. He has so much confidence that he arms them with, with, with torches and with, with pitchers that have, that, that have horns in them to, to blow in the trumpets. He arms them with this. And in verses 19 through 22 is where Gideon attacks and God causes this confusion. Let's look at verses 20 and 22, chapter 7. 20 through 22. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of each one against through, against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerarah, as far as the edge of Ebel Mehalah by Tabath. So God tells Gideon, go down to the camp and blow your trumpets. And then this is where God causes the confusion. Gideon is the one who goes down, but God is the one who causes this confusion to allow Gideon and his 300 men to defeat this entire army of the Midianites who like verse 12 says, was as numerous as locusts. He was victorious, and the nation of Israel was freed. And even if we were to continue, we're not going to look at it, but if we were continue to continue through chapter 8, we can see that Gideon tracks down the kings of the Midian nation, and he, and he kills them. And anyone who gets in his path, he also kills them, because they are trying to, to get in the way of doing what God has commanded them to do. And then there's peace throughout all of Israel, the Israelites' cry has been answered. Chapter 8, verses 28 through 32, there is finally peace in Israel after they had been oppressed by the nation of Midian. Verse 28 of chapter 8. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the, days was, and the, day, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was, with, was in Shechem, also bore him a son, his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Orphra of the Bezrites. So there is finally peace in the nation of Israel. God has answered the cry of the Israelites. After they did evil, God still had mercy on them and gave them grace through Gideon to save them from the nation of Midian. But this is not where the story ends. We went through the whole story of Gideon, looking at everything that was good that he did for Israel. But this is not where the story ends. Let's take a look at verses 33 through 35 of chapter 8. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. 
nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. And once again, the cycle continues. Israel has forgotten God again. They go right back to the Baals in idolatry. The first thing that Gideon was commissioned to do was to rid his household in Israel of this idolatry of the Baal. And that's the first thing they go back to do. They start serving and making an idol their God and not the Lord God their God. And they didn't even show kindness to the household of Gideon. And Gideon had done all this good for the nation of Israel. He had saved them. He, 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 through God, was the one who delivered them from the Midianites. And I think verse 34 is the key. It says, They did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Now, I think it might be the reason why Israel did not remember the Lord their God and forsook him like they had done so many times throughout the book already of Judges and numerous times after is because they didn't see God as the one who was delivering them. They only looked at Gideon. They only focused on Gideon. They were dependent on him and didn't focus on God who was the one who was using Gideon. Gideon was the vehicle through which God chose to save the, Mid the Israelites from the nation of Midian. And the fact that it was only after Gideon died further proved that they might have been very dependent upon him as a religious leader. Once their religious leader was gone, just like numerous times in the book of Judges, every time the judge died, once the religious leader was gone, the cycle continued and they went back to doing exactly as they had done. Then the nation of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This was a dependent faith. They only depended on the religious leader that God had given them for the time and never really depended on God and focused on him as the one who kept delivering them. And just like this endless perpetual cycle of dependency that is found within the book of Judges was detrimental to the nation of Israel, a dependent faith can also be detrimental to us. If we do not focus on God and depend on Him solely, it can be detrimental to us. Our faith, for the, the faith of the Israelites was dependent upon who God sent them, the judges. And our faith can be dependent on numerous things. It can be dependent on the preacher up here who stands in this pulpit, providing you the spiritual maturation that needs to be developed on your own and needs to be worked out on your own. It could be you could have a dependent faith that is dependent on a parent or a loved one who you want to please by having a faith and being spiritual and coming to church. Or it may be that your faith is just dependent upon a habit. You've grown up going to church your entire life, so it's always the right thing to do. So you're always here every time the doors are open. But when something like COVID happens, it's a lot easier to see church as something that you need to go into, it's just an obligation, and then it changes your mindset, and you're dependent upon a habit as opposed to wanting to be here, wanting to come to church and to study your Bible. All these things that your faith can be dependent upon can be detrimental to your salvation. It's your own walk of faith. It's not someone else's walk of faith. And just like in the nation of Israel proves how detrimental it is to have your faith dependent upon someone, that's why in the New Testament Jesus calls us to have a faith that is our own and to make it our own and have ownership of our faith. And I want to take a look at something in the New Testament for a little while that might be helpful for us to avoid these same mistakes that the Israelites had with their dependency of their faith. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now typically this is a passage we look at for unity, but I want to take a look at it at a different light tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, 
that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Paul clearly addresses here the perils of adhering or putting your faith in anyone other than Christ. And I think it's an important um, thing to address the unity that he talks about here. But I also think it's worth mentioning of how he talks about the perils of anything other, putting your faith in anything other than Christ. I mean, I, th- I think about Paul for a second. He was a pillar of the faith. Throughout the entire New Testament, he wrote so many books, and he was commissioned to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and he was just this pillar of faith in the New Testament. And I think about Peter as well. It talks about Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Peter was also a pillar of the faith. He was one of the original 12 that Jesus called as his apostles, and he was commissioned to bring the, the gospel to the Jews, and he was, he was the one who brought the, the sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. I think about Paul and Peter, and if there was anyone who you would want to put your faith in, it would be these two guys, right? I mean, these guys are just awesome. They, they just, they're just, I just think about them, and they just are something that's just so unattainable of faith. And that's kind of like what the Israelites did. They looked at these judges who God gave them as someone who, these people are so good, why not just put my faith after them? Because they're here, they're in the flesh. This God who everyone talks about, it's, it's hard to put my faith in someone I don't see, but these judges are here. But our faith is not set in them. Our faith is set in Jesus Christ. And we need to put our faith and have our dependency upon him. Not on Paul, not on Peter, just like Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not on the judges, just like the Israelites were doing. Because when they put their faith and they depended on someone who was physical and who was not the Lord God, it was always detrimental and they always went in this vicious cycle of leaving God. And that's what's going to happen if we put our faith in someone else. It's going to be detrimental. This summer I was, I was blessed to to intern at the Madison Church of Christ in Madison, Alabama. It was a, it was a wonderful summer. And when, when we had Bible camp, we went to Camp Neody in Lake Gunnersville, Alabama. And our theme for the week was wilderness. And we talked about the wilderness as being a faith, as, as being a place where we need to, to learn to make our faith our own and also to a place that we need to learn as we go throughout our journeys of life to rely on God. And we focused on this one scripture a lot during the week. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply for all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And this is the, this is the, the scripture that we use to, to tell to the kids, to, to teach the kids that we need to rely on God in any situation, in any hardship, in any, in any high, in any low. We need to rely on God because he's the one, he's the only one who's going to supply for all of our needs, just like Paul writes in Philippians. And in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1, I think it, I think it finally puts the nail in the coffin. Verse 13 of chapter 1. It says, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, the answer is no. We were not baptized into the name of Paul, and Paul was not crucified for us. It was Jesus Christ. Christ was the one who was crucified, and Christ was the one into which we were baptized. So he is the one who deserves our dependency. We need to depend on him, on Jesus, and on God. And with the start of 2022, I would like to set forth this challenge of owning your faith and to, and to make it dependent upon God and God alone. And I don't want this necessarily to be like a New Year's resolution because I don't really do New Year's resolutions. And I don't want it to be something either that's broken within two or three weeks because we know that most people usually break their New Year's resolutions. But being dependent upon God, I want something to be a challenge for each and every one of us, myself included, to be something that we do every day to manifest itself 
in our daily devotion to God. Choosing to put God as the person whom we depend on in our prayer life. When something goes good in our life, we pray to God. When something goes bad in our life, we pray to God. Depending on God means opening up His revealed Word that He has given to us and relying on it and using it to, to bless us and to encourage us, to rely on the church that He has given us. And not as to depend on the church necessarily as the sole force, the sole focus of our faith, but to depend on them to encourage us. A dependent faith is, is something that's very, very detrimental. And putting your faith in someone else is not what, is not what Jesus, is, Jesus has commanded us to do. I think about Luke chapter 9, where Jesus says to take up your cross daily and to follow him. To not take up someone else's cross, to not take up someone else's burdens, to not to follow someone else or adhere to someone else's teaching, teaching, teachings or doctrine, but to follow after him, to follow after Jesus. It's plain and simple that Jesus Christ and God are the only ones who we can depend our faith on. Not on anyone else, not on ourselves. We can't have faith in ourselves or anyone else. It was a vicious cycle within the, within the nation of Israel that they had in the book of Judges to, to leave God and to come back to God because they had a dependent faith. They did not rely on God. They did not focus on God as the one who delivered them. I think it's very important to have a faith dependent upon God. I think about what Ben talked about this morning. Where are you going? If you keep continuing down the path where you're going with the dependent faith, where is it going to lead you? Well, we can look at the nation of Israel in the book of Judges to see where it led them, constantly being delivered over into the nations that God, as, that God had given them over to as their oppressors. That's where, that's where it's going to lead you. It's only going to be detrimental. But where are you going if you have a faith that is dependent in God? I think about Philippians chapter 4. He will supply for all of your needs. It's plain and simple that God is the only one who we can depend on, manifesting itself like I talked about in our devotion to him every single day. Last Sunday night, we talked about Psalm chapter 146, another Ben lesson. And we talked about praising God in everything that we did. Praise God every day. Find something to praise God for. Depend upon him. Talk to him. Let him talk to you every single day. I'm very, I'm very hopeful that this lesson was very encouraging to you all tonight. I know it was. It's, it's an interesting study. I love the story of Gideon. I love the story of most, most of all the judges, but specifically Gideon because I think it's cool that he only had 300 men and he was armed with uh, trumpets and torches and defeated the nations of Midian. But I think it's very important to see at the end of his, at the end of his life what it can teach us about the perils of a dependent faith that is not dependent upon God, something that's dependent on something else. And I hope tonight it's been encouraging for you to, to realize the importance of depending upon God. So I hope now that you can, if you have something that is on your heart, you'll be able to come before the church to use what God has given us. We need to depend on God, and we need to depend on what God has given us. So you, if you have a need, let it come, let, come now as we stand and as we sing.